Amen. That's one of those uh, hymns that, you know, I, I could just, I wish there were a thousand verses. You know, I just wish we could keep on singing. Now, I grew up Baptist, so sometimes I felt like hymns did have a thousand verses, <laughs> especially during the altar call, you know. Uh, but uh, no, it was, that's a great hymn. Heaven Came Down. It's one of my favorite hymns. I, I don't say that lightly. I really love that hymn. I, it was, when I was a kid, it would be the, when they would have a pick a song night on Sunday services. This was back when they had, you know, Sunday services back in the day. Someone said, Sunday night church ended the night the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, and it's never been the same since. But anyway, um, I, I would always raise my hand and say, uh, you know, heaven came down. I think it was number 611. I can even remember that. I'm not even sure. But, uh, well, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts, and we come to the final message this morning in this little sub-series taken from Acts 2, verses 40 to 47. Now, I hope that Nobody out there is feeling like, wow, we've spent so much time in Acts chapter 2, because uh, really these are some very important principles for understanding the model church and understanding the differences between the local church 2,000 years ago when it was first established and what it often looks like today and, 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 and where we've fallen short. And so that's the reason we've spent so much time. But this morning it'll kind of hopefully be tied all together and we'll sort of make it all uh, come down to one really single ultimate purpose of the model uh, church uh, today, and hopefully we will uh, be able to say that we as a local church are representing that model well. Uh, in his book, Hand Me Another Brick, Chuck Swindoll uh, tells this uh, story. Back in 1958, a small community in northeastern Pennsylvania built a little red brick building that was to be their police department, fire department, and city hall. They were proud of that building. It was the result of sacrificial giving and careful planning. When the building was completed, they had a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and more than 6,000 people were there, nearly all of the town's residents. It was the biggest event of the year. Within just a few months, however, they began to notice that there were some ominous cracks on the side of this red brick building. Not long after, it was noticed that the windows wouldn't shut all the way. Then it was discovered that the doors wouldn't close correctly, and eventually the floors shifted and left ugly gaps in the floor covering and corners. The roof began to leak. Within a few more months, it had to be evacuated to the embarrassment of the builder and the disgust of the taxpayers. Well, they hired a firm to do an analysis shortly thereafter, and they found that blasts from a nearby mining area were slowly but effectively destroying the building imperceptibly down beneath the foundation there were small shifts and changes taking place that caused the whole foundation to crack you couldn't feel it or even see it from the surface but quietly and down deep there was a weakening a city official eventually had to write across the door of that building condemned not fit for public use and it was ultimately demolished well, we're going to talk this morning about a similar danger, imperceptible, sometimes hidden deep within, that can lead to devastating consequences for the believer. And it consequently can cause, bring shame to the church and to uh, the cause of Christ. I want us, since this is our last week studying the model church, I want us to review the distinction between mission and vision. Obviously, the mission is stated clearly in Scripture, and it's the same for all churches. Every church in the present age that's a Bible-believing church, anyway, has the same mission. Uh, but the vision 
is unique to each local church. And that vision also is not static. Uh, I mean, if you, if you have the same vision today that you had for your church 50 years ago, something's wrong. Because the world changes, culture changes, life changes, and we need to find new and different and more effective ways of accomplishing the vision. And that's why here at Plum Creek Chapel, anyway, we're with great inten intentionality and, and interest are going through uh, ways that we can really be more effective in our local outreach and our benevolence and our missions and all the different ministries of the church. And we've asked for your help, by the way, as I mentioned during the announcements, if you uh, would take the time to give us some feedback in that uh, survey. But it all kind of comes down to what is our vision. And as I was thinking about this series and kind of reviewing the, the different characteristics, we're going to get to the final one today, the 12th characteristic from Acts 2, I thought that, you know, ultimately it's got to be built on Jesus Christ as the foundation. That's really what we've been saying, that Jesus Christ gave us the Great Commission. And whatever our vision, however we articulate, whatever the details and specifics of how we're going to serve the Lord in Sedalia and beyond has to be built on Jesus Christ. So here in part seven, I want to review some of the characteristics we've talked about and then kind of get to this final uh, 12th one. So we've talked about, obviously, baptism and the Lord's Supper are two key ordinances of the church that the Lord tells us to keep doing until He returns. We see the emphasis on community and fellowship. Obviously, doctrine is a key component of the church. Any church that's not teaching clear biblical doctrine is not a New Testament church. Prayer is a key part of the church. Reverence. This understanding there is a God and we are not Him and that ultimately it's about Him and not us. Benevolence, caring for the needs of others. A unity, uh, like-mindedness, having common values based on the Word of God. Joy, recognizing that joy is not about our circumstances, but it's a choice. And then last week we talked about worship and how worship transcends just music, uh, but music is a part of worship. But worship has both an individual component as well as a corporate or group component. And so then today, we come to the twelfth and final one, and that is influence. Influence. Did you know that one of the core components of the New Testament model church is that we are to be having an influence on the world around us? That's the reason we exist. We, in our 9 o'clock hour this morning, we were talking about the purposes of the church global, and we only got through three of the five, but uh, one of those is to obviously uh, be a witness and, and share the gospel. Uh, that's true of any group that's God's designated group in any age. But when we talk about influence, we mean more than just our mission, more than just evangelism. We talk about making a difference in the world. So if you come to the final verse here in Acts chapter 2, we, Luke tells us they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Now that's a, a little phrase that you might skip over if you're not reading too quickly. But notice he goes on to say the, the Lord added to the church daily. Uh, but what does it mean to have favor with the people? It means that they were having an influence. People were watching what that Jerusalem church was doing and it had a positive impact on other people. And that, by the way, is why the Lord added to the church daily those who are not being saved. And so I think that what that tells us is that the church exists for those who are not yet here. You ever think about that? I mean, Plum Creek Chapel, in the big picture, exists 
not for those of us in this room this morning. We've got a great crowd. We've got people that join us by live stream. That's wonderful. That's the local church. And there's a lot of things that we do here, as we've been talking about, that help build up our faith as believers. But we need to ultimately recognize in the grand scheme of God's plan of the ages that this church and every other church exists for those who are not yet here. If we're not considering how we are influencing others, and, and by the way, as we're going to see in a moment, we're influencing others whether we realize it or not. The question is, is it a positive influence or a negative influence? Then we're not fulfilling our goal. Some churches become so inwardly focused that it's about, it's about them, you know. And, um, and, you know, I've been to a lot of churches, many, many churches through the years in our speaking ministry. And, you know, sometimes you can just get a feel for it when you walk in. I know Ann's nodding because she kind of has done this too. It's been a, a passion of hers is to kind of get first impressions. What, what, is, what do people think? Because sometimes, you know, you, you walk into a church, and if you're coming to the church, same church year after year after year, and you've been there for 40 years, you know, everything looks great to you, right? It's, it's like going to your grandmother's house. And, you know, to her, the green carpet and the orange couches and the yellow refrigerator, that all looks great because that was what was in back in the 50s and 60s, right? But, you know, when you go ready to sell that house and new people are they're thinking, wow, this, it, it, you know. So the same thing can happen in churches. We become inwardly focused and forget that, you know, yes, the local assembly, what we're doing this morning, is largely about training up believers, equipping believers. The church is not, the, the weekly assembly is not intended to be an evangelization station or evangelism station. Uh, it's a training up station. But at the same time, in God's plan of the ages, the church, that the local church exists to share the gospel. And for those who are not yet here, that's what Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew said, Matthew's account, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So we exist for those who are not yet here. It's not about us, it's about them. Not, it's not a either or. I mean, it's about us too. We have to encourage one another, do all the things that we've talked about, you know, love and unity and fellowship and community and building up in the faith and teaching doctrine. But let's not forget that it's about them uh, as well. So every characteristic of the model church that we've been reviewing over the past several weeks comes down to one thing, influence. How do we influence others positively for Christ? We're all influencers, whether you like it or not. Uh, someone is watching you. And, and by the way, I'm not just talking about the NSA and Google. I mean, your, your children are watching you. Your friends are watching Your neighbors are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. Right? Your spouse is watching you. So you're having an influence. The question is, what kind of influence is it? And how can we, you know, have a make that a, make sure that that's a positive influence on others. What guides your thinking, your actions, your words? What directs your ways? What is your true north that's driving all that you do so that your influence is positive on others? Um, so, uh, you know, when you think about a compass, everybody has sort of an inner moral compass. This is a diagram that I used to use uh, uh, years ago. I taught for 12 years full-time at the college, and 
graduate levels, and I taught not only Bible and theology, but I taught some leadership courses as well as part of a, to undergrad students as part of a Bachelor of Science in Leadership, a BSL. And uh, I used this diagram to talk about uh, character and integrity. But what, what is your true north in your inner moral compass? It's got to be God's word. This has to be our grid through which we funnel everything else and make sure that our beliefs, attitudes, and practices are all in conformity with the absolute truth of God's word. And when we do that, uh, the degree to which we can use the, the word of God as our true north, then our thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors all align, and it's what the Bible calls integrity. Integrity. So the twelfth characteristic of the model church is influence, but it's got to be positive influence, right? It would be terrible if after all these things and studies that we say we're going to have an influence, but we don't even think about whether it's positive or negative. The way to make sure it's positive is through integrity integrity so uh, you know one of the textbooks that I used uh, for those years this was many years ago but uh, and I had the students read it was a book by Ted Engstrom and it was called The Making of a Christian Leader and I don't know what Ted Engstrom's theology is necessarily but I always admired this statement of his what he said was the world needs men and I might add women who cannot be bought whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who possess opinions and a will, who are larger than their vocations, who do not hesitate to take chances, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be as honest in small things as in great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not say they do it because everybody else does it, who are true to their friends through good report and evil report, in adversity as well as prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and hard-headedness are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, and who say no with emphasis even when the rest of the world says yes. And I think the best summary of leadership that I've come up with is leadership. Obviously, leadership is influence. So it's not about a title or a position or a role. It's about influence. You know, the stay-at-home mother of a toddler is an influencer, is a leader. But I think leadership at its core means being willing to stand alone. Jesus is ultimately the greatest example of a leader, and he died alone on a brutal cross and everybody abandoned him sometimes people say leadership means you have followers and a leader without followers is just taking a walk no sometimes a leader without followers means that's your true leader so anybody can get you know um, get followers right uh, <clears throat> it was who was it uh, the great texas uh, congressman Oh, his name escapes from me, but he said it like only a Texan can. He said, even a dead fish can go with the flow, right? <laughs> so leadership isn't about followers. It's about being willing to stand alone. And that means integrity. And the Bible has a lot to say about integrity. Let's define it first from an English dictionary, this from dictionary.com. Three entries, soundness of moral character, honesty, 
an adherence to a moral code. And the biblical term for integrity in the Old Testament picks up really on all three of these English nuances at the same time. It's the English word, I mean, it's the Hebrew word tumah, tumah. And uh, if you want to remember how to say it, remember I told you when I was studying Hebrew, you know, I come up with all these mnemonic, mnemonic devices to help me remember how to say things. I need a mnemonic device to remember how to say mnemonic. But anyway, um, uh, and so uh, for, for Tuma, I would just imagine a New Yorker announcing that he got the results from his biopsy and he has a tumor. Yeah, I got a Tuma. Uh, that's what I have. So, But anyway, um, the, this is the biblical word for integrity in the Old Testament. It means behavior that consistently follows a course. Behavior that consistently follows a course. And the quintessential example of a man of, of integrity, of course, is Job. And remember what we read in Job 2. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Later on in that same chapter, Job's wife says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. See, Job's inner moral compass, his true north, told him to stand fast, to stand firm, no matter what else was falling apart around him. In one of his speeches near the end, he says, Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Remember, he was talking to his three uh, friends, friends, right? Uh, Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. And he goes on talking uh, to the Lord. Let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. Do you ever say to the Lord, Lord, you know my heart, right? Be careful about saying that because he does know your heart, right? You're not going to pull one over on him. But sometimes, and I think this is Job's heart here, he was saying, Lord, well, you know my heart. You know I'm trusting you. And, and, and I really want to do what's right here, and I'm not compromising. And um, so Job is a great example of integrity, but Proverbs talks about integrity. Same word here, tuma, the integrity of the upright will guide them. So what guides us, again, like that compass, is our integrity. If you don't have integrity, you're just going to be going in circles. You're going to be chasing all kinds of things and running in, you know, running all in different directions because you have no central core true north. Proverbs 10, this is actually a slightly different word, but it's from the same Hebrew root as Tumah. He says, he who walks with integrity walks securely. In other words, you know where you're going. Those with integrity have, without integrity, have no inner compass. So they're constantly turning and stepping on landmines and, and causing problems and having problems. But when you have integrity, you don't, you don't have to labor over which way to go. Oh, what do I do now? These people, you know, don't like me or these people won't vote for me or these people are, are going to say this. None of that matters. When you've got integrity, you just look at the compass. Oh, yeah, this is the way to go. This is I'm going to walk securely, right? Not having integrity is like being lost in the national forest without a GPS or cell phone or compass or transponder or anything. You're, you're just sunk. 
and living in near mountains and forests like we do, we, we know. We've all maybe even experienced that, but we certainly know the tragic stories of people that got turned around and didn't have the right equipment and got lost. Right? Proverbs 20 says, The righteous man walks in his integrity. And David, King David, knew what it meant to walk in integrity. He said, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Preserve me. So being a Christian is more about who we are than what we do. Tuma. So as we look again at this biblical definition, I want to focus on one aspect of it. It's behavior that consistently follows a course. When our words and actions and thoughts are all consistent with that moral code, that inner compass that's laid out in God's Word, then it can be said we have integrity. When, we, when what we say and do and think all line up and are consistent, we have integrity. So <clears throat> let me diagram it out if I can. <clears throat> so we've got <clears throat> our values uh, what we think, what we believe, our principles, you might say. We've got our words, what we say. And, of course, we've got our actions. Now, nobody's perfect, this side of glory. Uh, we all ought to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. We all ought to strive to obey the Word of God. So these three areas don't perfectly overlap all the time. But the, the degree to which they overlap, that area represents our integrity. Our integrity. And if we're going to influence others here at Plum Creek Chapel, and as believers, I know we've got people watching the live stream from all over that, that maybe have another church that they're involved in. But wherever you are, in Sedalia or Denver or Elizabeth or Colorado Springs or some other part of the country, you've got to have integrity. We've got to have our principles, our words, and our actions all align as best as possible. A lack of integrity leads to a negative influence. So let's talk about a lack of integrity in each of these three areas. Uh, the first one is a verbal inconsistency, a lack of honesty. When our words are not consistent with our principles and our actions, uh, we have no we, we have a diminished integrity, right? I call this the pretense syndrome, and the poster children of this syndrome are Ananias and Sapphira. I've been camped out in Acts for a while, and so I'm thinking about a lot of stories from Acts, and we're going to get to Acts chapter 5, but you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they sold their land, because that's what people were doing to help the early church. Remember Barnabas, that's how we first learned about Barnabas, who becomes a key figure later on in Acts, because he sold some land and gave it to the Jerusalem church. They said, yeah, we want to do the same thing. So they sold their land, and then they lied about how much they got for it and lied when they gave it to the church. It's pretense. Now, I've got a new book coming out, Spirit of the Antichrist, which is all about the spirit of pretense. That's what I call it. One of the seven manifestations of the spirit of Antichrist in the world today. And so because of this pretense syndrome, because their words were not consistent with their deeds and actions. In other words, they were lying. Look what happened to their integrity. Very small. Only a small segment overlap. So 
when things are not consistent, our integrity suffers. Uh, what, what about uh, behavioral inconsistency, our actions? What happens when our actions are not consistent? Uh, well, for this, we look at what I call the perception syndrome. The perception syndrome. This is Peter, and everybody knows the story about Peter. When Christ was betrayed, headed to the cross, and Peter was accused of knowing him three times. Jesus had predicted this would happen. And each time, he showed an utter lack of courage, and he behaved in a way that was inconsistent with what he believed and what he had said. What did he, what did he tell the Lord? Never, Lord, I will never deny you. What happened? Three times before the rooster, rooster crowed, he denied the Lord. And so his integrity was highly diminished in that moment, which means what? His influence was diminished. Not diminished, but it was negative. It had a negative return, right? And then, you know, what about our character or our values, a, a lack of principle, our beliefs? Well, uh, when our values are inconsistent, I call this the political syndrome. And I think of Pilate. Rather than standing on principle, Pilate, if you remember, chose to do the expedient thing. He tried to play the crowd and get out of making the hard decision by doing what he thought the crowd wanted. He assumed that when he offered them a prisoner, they would choose Jesus. But of course, the bloodthirsty crowd demanded Barabbas be released and Jesus be crucified. And so Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? And then he washed his hands and he essentially said, it's on you. <laughs> but it wasn't on him, on them. It was on Pilate. You know, Pilate in that moment had the, the, the authority to do the right thing. He could have acted with integrity. He could have acted based on principle. Of course, that's a historical example. I understand the theology behind it and God's prophecy and how this was all part of God's plan, that they would crown Jesus with thorns, and so I get that. But just in a historical setting, here's a guy in a position of influence and power who could have stood on principle, but he held his finger to the wind and did what was politically expedient. So the political syndrome is saying what others want to hear and doing uh, what will get what I want from others. And I had a comment here in my notes that I was planning uh, to mention, and I am going to mention it, but I didn't realize that Holly was going to be here this morning. So I'm, I promise you I'm not just flattering here. This is something that the Lord put on my heart. But when I was in this room for the meet and greet that Holly gave a few weeks ago, Holly, by the way, that those of you who may not know, is running for county sheriff. And um, I'm not going to tell you who you should vote for, but... Jesus and I are voting for Holly, all right? Let's just put it that way, okay? Uh, I don't mind telling you who I'm going to vote for. Actually, I can't vote because I don't live in Douglas County, but if I did, that's she's got my vote. But anyway, in one of the answers to the questions, and I don't know if you remember this because I know you give a lot of speeches and all, but I forget, I don't even remember what the question was, but it, her, her answer really struck with me where it's, she said, look, I'm going to make my decisions based on principle, and you use that word. In other words, Frankly, it's not just about upholding the law or the Constitution or this or that or what the people say or want. It's not about a vote, a democracy. You know, democracy is just two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for supper, right? It's about principle, right? 
And that stuck with me. And I wish there were more politicians and public servants who would stand on principle. In my new book, I talk a lot about um, the false left-right paradigm and how you know Republicans will often say one thing and then they get into office and nothing changes. Well, that's because they get into office and suddenly they fall prey to the political syndrome. And uh, they're very good at saying, I will not deny you. They'll say it over and over again on the campaign trail. Then they get in and there's all kinds of pressures that come to bear and their, their integrity wavers. And so, as with the others, look at what happens to your integrity when you lack principle, when you lack principle. So just to summarize, a lack of integrity, you've got a lack of honesty or verbal inconsistency like Ananias and Sapphira who said, we've given all when they really haven't. Then you've got a lack of courage like Peter, behavioral inconsistency who said, I'll never deny you. And of course, you've got a lack of principle, character inconsistency when, like Pilate who said, what is truth, right? He didn't have a true north. So we're all influencers whether we realize it or not, someone's watching you. And the question is, what, what is your true north? Are you consistent in your attempt to follow that compass, which of course is God's word and therefore reflect integrity? To the extent that we follow consistently with our actions and our words and our thoughts, God's word, we have integrity. And the best way to have a positive influence is to have integrity. And uh, we need to be able to say with Job, that verse I looked at earlier, till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. So what we need are more Christians with integrity. That's what we need. Uh, we need Christians who are going to consistently follow that moral code, which we believe the only ultimate moral code is God's Word. So I think the final characteristic of the model church, influence, really summarizes all the others. Because you know what? It doesn't matter how well we can sing, how much money we give to help those in need around us. It doesn't matter how many missionaries we send abroad. It doesn't matter how much we teach the Bible how many hours we spend in prayer. If our church body is not made up of men and women and young people of integrity, it's counterproductive. It's making a difference. It's, it's making a negative difference in the world today. So here's the takeaway this morning. Very simple from the three areas of influence. Speak the truth. Do what you say you're going to do. And stand on principle. Speak the truth, do what you say you're going to do, and stand on principle. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for just this uh, reminder of the impact that the early church had on its surroundings in the first century. And we understand that it's because in many cases and at great personal cost, these men and women stood on integrity stood on principle. Lord, we pray that you would raise up people today to, that would reflect that same type of God-ordained integrity based on your word.
And Lord, we pray that if there's one here today that maybe doesn't have a relationship with you to begin with, so they have no hope of having a, a true biblical moral compass, that today would be the day of salvation. And that person would recognize that priority number one is trusting in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, as the only one who can save them. And I pray that even right now in this, in this moment, wherever they may be, that in simple childlike faith, they would place their faith in Jesus for salvation. And then, Lord, for those who already know you, Lord, we just pray that you would just convict us through your Holy Spirit to do an evaluation and recognize how, what areas in our life are inconsistent. And we pray that we would bring them into conformity with your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.